I feel a new surge of power. <laughs> and, and Tony's been trying to get my attention for the past five minutes, I think, back there, to tell me that wasn't on. Okay, well, I'm going to have to adjust to this now. Uh, most of my, most of my uh, opportunities have been focused on fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what he commanded us to do. And that's taken me into several different roles, several different jobs, opportunities, different places. But it's always included work in a local church. Uh, some in an urban setting, suburban Small rural churches, most of them small, mid-sized churches. Some were old, some were new, some were thriving, some were struggling. 25 years ago, God used us and a couple of other families in Greenfield to start Cornerstone Church there, Cornerstone Fellowship Church, and now Risen Hope Church in Anamosa. Planting new churches, making disciples. I've been telling myself ever since this new venture started to come together, I've written this over the top of everything that I've done. I've, I've told other people, I tell you this morning, we are in a spiritual battle. Now, all of us, all of the time, are in a spiritual battle. But this is special. Uh, This is D-Day. This is Normandy landing. Because in planting a new church, we are invading some territory that Satan has held on to. You know, he will do anything and everything he can to stop us, to defeat this venture. Some obvious things, some subtle things. He'll come at us from every different angle imaginable. You know, Ephesians chapter 6 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil. So we have to fight this battle in spiritual terms, with spiritual weapons. Now, in the, in the weeks and the months ahead, uh, we Anamosaites, I don't know if that's a word, sounds like a, an Old Testament tribe, doesn't it? <laughs> we the Anamosaites. We're going to be planning and we're going to be dreaming together. We're going to work on mission and vision and values, and we're going to try to borrow from the wisdom of others, read and consulted. But we need spiritual armor. We need a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness. We need a belt of truth. We need our feet shod with the good news of the gospel. We need a shield of faith. We need a sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Pray those things for us. Pray those things in the months and weeks ahead. I've already heard multiple offers many times. How can we help? Questions of how to help. In the weeks and months ahead, I'm sure we're going to have some material needs, some needs of time, some needs of volunteering, some help. And we'll ask. But what we most of all need are those prayers. Here's how Paul concludes Ephesians. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Keep alert 
and always keep on praying for all the saints. That's what I ask of you this morning for us, for that new church, for Risen Hope in Anamosa. So let's get into the study of Romans this morning. We're going to continue the study that's been going on for several weeks here. Our passage this morning is the latter half of chapter 5. So if you want to turn there in one way or another in the Bible, Bibles in the pews or the chairs, um, on your devices, wherever, Romans is such an amazing and important book. I mean, it is so packed with life-giving truth. I mean, you can really just open it up and drop your finger just about anywhere, and you've got a lot to chew on. But we're going to focus on this second section uh, in chapter 5. And even this passage, I would say more than many others in Romans, offers a challenge because it contains so much that's packed into such a small space. There's doctrine here, there's theology, there's so many cross-references to Old Testament history, Old Testament teaching. Any single phrase that we're going to look at this morning is, is like pulling on a thread, and, and you pull on it, and it just keeps coming, and it just keeps coming. What's more, I'll just say it this way. Paul needed a good editor, he needed a good editor. I, I would say, Paul, you need to rewrite this because your sentence structure is really complex. You know, Paul, like my eighth grade English teacher would say, just try to diagram this sentence. <laughs> now, Paul, of course, had the Holy Spirit as an editor. So we've got what God wanted us to have here. But it takes some work. Now, given all of that, Essentially, this passage is a comparison and a contrast between two men. That's what we're going to look at, the lasting impact of two men. So let's pray, then we'll get into the study here. So, Father, I, I lift up our time here. Um, I ask that your Holy Spirit would use me, uh, direct me in what I say, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would prepare the hearts. And as has been mentioned before and prayed before, we want to be doers of your word, not just hearers. So, Holy Spirit, open up our minds and open up our hearts and, and perform that miracle of taking these words and applying them to each and every life that is here, the life situation that each of these people has had. There's no way that I can know that, but Holy Spirit, you do. You know what they need to hear. So accomplish that this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read our passage. Chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, 12 through 19, or 17. No, 20, 20. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even over those who did not sin by breaking the command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. 
But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so all through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where to start? Verse 12. Let's start there. We've got sin. We've got one man. We've got death. We've got all sinned. Now, that verse alone runs head on into the 21st century view of what mankind is like. A view that would ignore or attack these ideas. There's two worldly truths air quote, truths that make this passage especially challenging. I'll, I'll call the first one original innocence. Original innocence. Have you ever heard this? He's not a bad person. He just made some bad choices. She's not a bad person. She's just caught in some difficult circumstances. Maybe it sounded like this. Follow your heart, because your heart will tell you what's right. You know, if you go back and if you peruse the text of all of the, so many of the uh, graduation commencement speeches from last month, you will find that message over and over again. Follow your heart, because your heart will tell you what's right. That's the message that we get from the world. The biblical truth is, the problem is us. Our human nature is stained. We're not born as a blank slate of innocence. And if you doubt that, volunteer for the church nursery. And I say that as a grandparent of four kids, four amazing, wonderful kids, all six and under, and I've seen it. If ever there was a tenet of Christianity that could be verified by mountains of evidence and experience, that even the most hardened skeptic would have to admit, this is it. 
Let me share a, a couple of quotes from some of those skeptics. A woman named uh, Beatrice Webb, she helped found the modern welfare system in Britain. She was an activist, a leader, a, a socialist, a liberal in her views. But here's what she said. Here's, here's what she wrote. In 1925, she looked at a previous entry in her diary, and she said, In my diary in 1890, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power, how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature. But will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. And unless we curb the basic impulse, how will we get better social institutions? Another observation. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian dissident, uh, spoke in criticism of the Soviet government which landed him in one of the gulags, the gulag prison camps, for a number of years. Now, now during that time, he rediscovered some Christian faith. And later he wrote this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem that we all share. Previous chapters of Romans have shown us that. If you've been here for those messages, if you read through the first three, four chapters of Romans... This passage and others, many other verses, clearly assert the problem that we have. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Further on, chapter 7, verse 18 of Romans, Paul says, Paul says, nothing good dwells in me. Jeremiah 17.3, the heart is deceitful. It's deceitful above all things and beyond cure. David in Psalm 51 writes, In sin my mother conceived me. The Apostle John, uh, one of my favorite apostles, the apostle that Jesus loved, who wrote such a wonderful gospel, but he wrote this letter to Christians, other Christians, and he said, If we say we have no sin, there is no truth in us. So many verses, because... This is a basic description of the human condition and the relationship we have to God. I mean, that's the story of the Bible, the big story of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is God's work to restore the broken relationship that he has with mankind. You know, there's many definitions of sin because there's so many aspects to it. 
But one of my favorites and one of the simplest is sin is missing the mark. It's an offense against God. It's an offense against fellow man. You know, we usually think of sin as actions. You know, we've got, we've got the list. Scripture gives us a list of actions that are sinful, that offend God, that offend our fellow man. But sin is also our condition. So where did this human bent for evil come from? How did it all begin? Well, Paul answers that with a who. I mean, to be grammatically correct, with whom did sin begin? And the answer comes here in verse 12. One man. Now, down in verse 14, he names that man Adam. We inherited it from Adam. One man. Now, here's, here's the second point of our head-on collision, the modern 21st century view that we collide with, that this scripture collides with, individualism. You know, the notion that we suffer because of the consequences of someone else's action, well, that's something that a modern individualistic mind simply cannot accept. You know, this is like the whole class being kept in from recess because one kid wrote something nasty on the blackboard. Not fair. Or, or it's like me having to stand in a long line and take off my shoes and my belt and go through an x-ray machine and, and be patted down and not be allowed to take anything except in small little bottles because I want to get on an airplane. I'm old enough to remember all you needed was your ticket and you walked up the stairs and got on the plane. But something happened in the meantime. Something evil happened. And now I suffer the consequences for it. Well, the Christian doctrine calls it original sin. One theologian prefers to use the term inherited corruption. I think that's a little better description. We have an inherited corruption. It's in our DNA. You know, we've got this modern understanding now of what is inherited and how, a little bit of how that works, at least physically. We've got a DNA. Quick sidebar. I like to do this when I talk. Quick sidebar comes from my publishing background. You know, there's the main article, and then there's the sidebar. Here's the sidebar. The foundation of this passage is that Adam was a real man who acted in real time and in a real place. He's not symbolic. He's not a myth. He's not a metaphor. He's a real man. Paul's entire comparison and contrast is built on that. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to argue that or support it. I'm just going to assert that. I accept it as true. If you want to talk some more about that, I'm happy to talk some more. Like I said, we're in Anamosa a lot of times, but that means we're around. I would be happy to sit down and talk more if you want to about this idea of Adam. Oh, and one other quick point here. Paul says, Adam, 
He doesn't try to blame Eve. He blames Adam. And that's another one that I'm not going to get into this morning. There's enough blame to go around, Adam and Eve, but Paul summarizes in Adam. The trespass of one man, and the consequence is death. I think it's helpful to think of death in a Christian context, and I often share this at funeral services. Think of death not as an end, not as a cessation, but as a separation. We all exist with it. Death is a separation, physical, spiritual. You know, at a a funeral, when someone dies physically, sadly, we are separated from that friend or that loved one. But spiritually, they have not ceased to exist. We're just separated from them. We all exist with this. Obviously, there's physical death. But death, the idea here in this passage, more than just that end point, it's, it's everything that leads up to that. It's the disease, it's the suffering, it's the weakness, it's the fading away. Because that's the foundation, because this is the foundation of the passage that we're looking at, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 3. If you will, turn, turn there with me. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, you you know the story. It's familiar. You know, the familiar players, Adam, Eve, serpent. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Let's let's read 3, 1 through 7. The serpent is more crafty than any of the wild animals. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat? from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. There were more consequences to come. There were some immediate consequences. There were broken relationships from that point on between God and man. There was fear. Notice one of the first reactions of them is fear, and then it's hiding. There were broken relationships between man and woman. There was blame. There was blame shifting. There was distrust. There was a power struggle going on between the two of them. The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed. The pain of childbirth is increased. I remember it well, the birth of our first child, Heather. Uh, Vicky's water broke at midnight with a, on, on the due date. We thought, oh, well, this is a good start. We went to the hospital. 
16 hours of labor, four hours of pushing. Now, we had gone through, we were living in California at the time, so we had gone through natural childbirth classes. We were committed to you know, doing that, delivering this child as naturally as possible. We had arrived with all of these little gifts and gimmicks and techniques. Vicky started having back labor, terrible back pains, which she was trying to push for all of that time. And we had, we had a tennis ball, you know, oh, rub the tennis ball on her back. That will help relieve the pain. Didn't work. We, we had one of those wooden uh, kind of rollers with wheels on it. Didn't help. The only thing that really helped was for me to be behind her and massage her on her lower back. And, and not just massage, but press really hard and, and really dig in. And so as we went through this, I had to keep massaging and, and, and pushing hard. And, and I'd, I'd want to let up. And she said, no, no, you got to keep going. And my fingers just got so tired. And my arms were all, and my shoulders just ached. Oh, ladies, don't you feel sorry for me? <laughs> it was such an ordeal. But I have to say, in the middle of this, and I remember this clearly, I, I will say... I'll put it this way. Darn you, Adam. (laughs) We wouldn't be going through any of this if you hadn't have sinned. Curse you for making childbirth so difficult. Well, we made it through. But you see, that's the lasting consequence that's there. Adam, it's all your fault, but I'm still suffering the consequence. And we inherited... Not only the guilt, but also the corruption. Listen closely. We are not sinners because we sin, that is, commit acts of sin. We commit acts of sin because we are sinners. See, eating eating fruit, by the way, it doesn't say apple in the Bible. But this is what we all think of, right? Eating fruit was not the problem in the garden. It was not a poison apple. That's Snow White. Eating fruit was not the problem. The problem was the heart issue. That Satan tempted Eve. And the temptation was, did God really say, you will be like God? Satan cast doubt on the goodness of God. He can't be trusted. And Satan has not changed his tactics since then. You know, the devil didn't tempt Adam and Eve to murder or steal or even tell a lie. He questioned the word of God, which questioned the goodness of God. And we've inherited that same desire like DNA. You know, one of my favorite lyrics, song lyrics, comes from a songwriter named Charlie Peacock, made popular by DC Talk. I keep trying to find the light on my own, apart from you. I am the king of excuses. I have one for every, every selfish thing I do. 
Tell me what's going on inside of me. I despise my own behavior. This only serves to confirm my suspicions that I'm still a man in need of a savior. This disease of self runs through my blood. It's a cancer fatal to my soul. Every attempt on my behalf has failed to bring this sickness under control. At this point, you might be thinking, I don't know about this new guy. All he does is talk about sin. And you'd be right. I mean, indeed, if this is the only time you've heard me speak, then every time I talk, I've talked about sin. But, but don't give up on the message because we're not quite done. We still have more to look at. Here's the turning point. Verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. See, Paul's been sketching the man of sin, Adam, what he's like. But now he paints the contrast. He uses this wonderful phrase that he introduced in the previous passage. How much more? Go back up above to to verse 9. Let me give us a little context. Let me start in verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? How much more? Again, in verse 10, he says, For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved, continue to be saved through him? Verse 15, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to read 15 through 17. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more? that God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. Again, the gift of God was not the result of one man. The gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through the one man, how much more? Well, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. How much more? Here's the thing. If you get upset over the idea that the one man, Adam's actions, that the, the one man's Actions brought consequences down on you, on all mankind, but but on you. If you cry foul, that's not the way it should be. Not fair. Well, what are you going to do now? Now that here is one man whose actions, Jesus' actions, are bringing down righteousness for all mankind, for mankind, for you. He's bringing life as a gift by his grace. 
verses 18 and 19. Through the obedience of one man, the many are made righteous. How much more? How much more does he accomplish? Verse 20. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin abounded, grace overabounded. That's the word that's behind that. Literally, hyperabounded. Here's a really crude illustration. What, what takes more work, more effort, more power in this material world? To kill something or to give it life? Any gardeners here this morning? Vicki and I are terrible gardeners. <laughs> you know, plants, plants are hard, aren't they? I mean, there's so many things that, that can go wrong that can kill them. That's, it's not our fault. There's just so many things that can go wrong. You can overwater them or underwater them. They can get too much sun or not enough sun. There can be bugs. There can be diseases. All of those things that can go wrong. How much work does it take to kill something? Just a little neglect. That's all it takes. But to bring life, how much more? How much more work? By grace you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. When we're saved, it's not because we stop sinning less. We still commit actions of sin. It's because by God's gift, by God's grace, our condition has changed. So when you're saved, your, your spiritual DNA changes. That's, Nic- that's Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's Paul saying to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, a new creature. One last point. I need to wrap up this study for now. And like I said, I'm leaving out so much. And if you want to come talk some more about any of this, I'd be happy to do that. This is what's true of us as children of God. By his grace, lavished on us, we have a new nature. We have spiritual life. But, but what is also true, and I wish it weren't, but it's also true that the old nature still haunts us. As long as we are in this flesh, the word tells me that. My experience tells me that. Paul himself experienced that. When we get on over to chapter 7, he writes about that himself. Verse 21, he says, When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Wretched man that I am. That was Paul's experience. The reality of the Christian life is we're not perfect yet. There will be a day. But we're not perfect yet. How much more? How much more will we be saved? God's at work in us, in you and in me, to make us like his son. But that old nature is still there. You know, in my years, I've been around long enough. I've worked in a number of different jobs. I've had good bosses. I've had bad bosses. I've had a couple of especially bad bosses. 
Now, imagine if, uh, say, tonight or maybe tomorrow morning, one of those bad bosses calls me up and says, Ken, I want you here at 8 o'clock on Monday morning because I've got this, this, and this for you to do. Well, why would I listen to that? You know, she, she's still there. She's, she's still calling on me. She's still trying to tell me what to do. But you see, I don't work there anymore. My, my job nature has changed. How does God do that? What, what's this process of change? How do we grow into that new life that he's given us? Well, Pastor Matt will tell you next week when he's back. <laughs> well, no, I'll give you a little preview. Just a little preview. If we read ahead in Romans, Paul, in his struggle with that wretched old nature, comes to this point. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul writes in other places, I consider that old nature dead. Different versions have different words there. I reckon myself dead to sin. I consider myself dead to sin. See, I am no longer a child of Adam. Now, Chronicles of Narnia refers to the children in there. Sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. I'm not a son of Adam anymore. Ladies, you, you are not daughters of Eve anymore if you are in Christ. See, if there was some sort of spiritual DNA test that could be done, you wouldn't show up as related to Adam anymore. You're a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ. I am a child of God. And that's the goodness of God. Our flesh wants to doubt that. Satan still wants to tempt us and thinking, are you sure God is so good? That was the temptation of the garden. It's still around. So my life's purpose from here on out is to discover and experience all that I can about the goodness of this God who's given me new life. How much more? To read his word, to, to gather together with, with all of you, where we can share stories from our different lives to say, here's the goodness of God in my life. Here's what God did for me this past week. We share those together so that we rejoice and we worship him in the goodness of God. I tell others about him. I, I share that good news of how good God is. I remember, as we will do in just a few moments, God's abundant provision of grace, the gift of righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning as your children. I pray for those brothers and sisters who are here. And with them, I give thanks for the new nature 
that you have given us as a gift by your grace. Father, I, I pray for, uh, for us as we seek to know you more, know you better, that we might reflect that grace and we might share it. Father, I pray maybe there are some here this morning that this, this message is uh, a bit confusing. Uh, maybe it's uh, puzzling. Lord, I, I know that even within me are, the, are there s- those same two r- rebellious thoughts uh, of wanting to say to myself, well, I'm not so bad. I, I want to assert my innocence before you. Or, or I want to object and, and say, why, why should that sin of Adam have any effect on me? But, Lord, that's the, that's the temptation that lives in my flesh. Continue to shape me and mold me. Renew me by your word. Renew me by the fellowship of your church. That I might glorify you, that we all might glorify you in this week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.